again. I was just listening back to some of the ground we've covered so far and it's got a bit political in parts, hasn't it? You know, talking about nationalism and British identity and all that. That was never the intention. There were never any intentions, really, but there was never any intention to make it political. There should be the same rules applied to podcasts as pubs. No politics, no religion, because you're only going to end up annoying people. And besides, I'm not even a political guy. The worst job in the world now is to be an MP to be a Member of Parliament. Uh, it used to be good, as I understand it. it. used to get away with all sorts as an MP. And for one thing, they were always hammered. The House of Commons was just a big pub up until about the early 90s, but certainly way back in the day. And you'd have a good pub too, because it was all about variety. You'd have your socialists defending industry in their Northumberland constituencies and ridiculously posh old boilers all beetroot-faced on port and brandy and dusty old bookish types and flash young Harris. It would have been a riot, and it, apparently it was. Affairs, chauffeurs, late-night fights, restaurants, hotels. But now, if you're an MP, you can't get away with anything. You're a, you're a civil servant. There's no fun in it. You've got to toe the party line. You can't speak out of turn. If you steal a biro, you're going to be on the front page of the paper the next day. And if you can't nick stuff from work, there's no point in going to work, is there? Just small stuff, like an ink stamp. Imagine an ink... They probably have ink stamps with the House of Commons logo on it for letters. You'd have that. You'd have that away. And glasses in the bar, you know, whiskey glasses with the House of Commons logo. You'd give them away uh, to your friends as Christmas presents. What great Christmas presents too, but not anymore. You can't do it. And everyone nicks stuff from work. If you work in a dry cleaners... And so I feel sorry for MPs because everyone does it, but they're not allowed. If you work uh, in a dry cleaners, you're going to put your own clothes through. It's a perk of the job. If you work in WH Smith's, the newsagent, you're going to take a magazine out to the staff room. You'll probably just take it at the end of the day. It's not properly stealing. But if you're an MP, though, you wouldn't dare. You can't even nick thousands of pounds of rent to keep your secret gay lover in a luxury pad in Hyde Park, can you? There's nothing you can do now as an MP. Bit of satire there. I'm like Rory Bremner, aren't I? But the worst MP, the worst MP to be is Prime Minister. And what a great job that would have been. Back in the day, Prime Minister, I'm the Prime Minister, do what I like. Now, if you watch Prime Minister's Question Time, and for those of you living outside the UK or those of you living in the, in the UK under the age of 20, Prime Minister's, yeah, dissing the youth. Prime Minister's Question Time is on telly. It happens once a week. And the Prime Minister has to answer any questions from his fellow MPs um, for half an hour. And he's unprepared. He, you ask him anything and he has to bat it away. And it sounds like the very backbone of democracy. But actually, in reality, it's just a playground spat. Everyone, what happens? Everyone stands up. Everyone, everyone that's got a question stands up. And then the speaker at the end, he's in charge. He's neutral. He'll pick someone. He'll go, Miss Diane Rotherham. And everyone will sit back down and she'll go, Miss Diane Rotherham will go, does the Prime Minister think he's made a plick of himself over the whole independent schools thing? And everyone else goes, here, 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 which means here, here, means we agree with that, here, 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 here. 
But then all the people who are on the Prime Minister's gang, they go, oh, whatever, shut your face, right? And then the Prime Minister stands up and he defends himself and sits back down and gets a pat on the back. And then the Speaker will pick someone else. He'll go, uh, Sam Spavely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone else stands up and goes, Lord, um, see my constituency. Well, it's just fallen to pieces because the Prime Minister cut the funding. Does he agree that he's a light numpty and he should have I am a dick drawn on his face? <laughs> You're a dick! And the Speaker goes, order, order, let the Prime Minister speak. And then the Prime Minister defends himself. And then you, you sometimes get really kiss-ass questions from from the Prime Minister's own party. It's just someone trying to get a promotion. Someone will... The Speaker goes, Mr David Rivers, and the bloke goes, um, does the Prime Minister think he's brilliant, like I do? Thanks. And then the Prime Minister will smile and he'll say, well, I'd like to thank my right honourable friend for the question. And right honourable friend, that's what they say. You can say, you have to address people as right honourable gentleman or right honourable lady or... You can say, right honourable friend, if indeed you consider yourself to be their mate. So MPs ask a question of the Prime Minister and say, um, does my right honourable friend... That's right, I'm his friend. I know the Prime Minister. And it's also childish. If someone stutters a bit or mispronounces a word, you know, they stand up, they're a bit nervous, and they go, um, does the Prime Minister agree that this, uh, with this host that's splending on public sector? And everyone goes, ah, oh, you meant spending, you've splending, you, <laughs> you can't even speak. And they sit down all red-faced, and in the bar later, the House of Commons bar, they'll be going, hello, splending, splending some time with your family this weekend, splending. It's, uh, and then there are MPs from little rural constituencies where nothing happens. But they've still got to ask at least one question a year. It's their job. But they know that they're in London with all the townie MPs and they feel a bit self-conscious. And no one listens to what they say, but they've got to get up and they go, Does the Prime Minister acknowledge that um, the bus shelter in my constituency, the only bus shelter, is getting a bit rusty? Thank you. And everyone goes, Moo! Get off my land! Moo! But basically... It's just people having a go at the Prime Minister. And I don't know about you, but if I was Prime Minister, if I was the Prime Minister, I know it's democracy, and I know Prime Minister's question time is meant to be a bit of a free-for-all, but if I was the Prime Minister, I don't think I'd put up with it. I think I'd pull rank. If someone went, does the Prime Minister agree that he's an absolute twit? He doesn't know what he's doing. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would get up and just stare at him and go, um, hang on. What did you just say to me? And the whole house would... The Prime Minister's never done that before. If he just got up and went, What did you say to me? What did, Oi, what did you say? And the whole house would go quiet. And the guy would suddenly feel exposed. And he'd go, I, I just said, Do you know what you're doing? And the, if I was Prime Minister, I'd go, No, you didn't. That's not what you said. You called me a twit. Who the heavens do you think you're talking to, mate? I'm the Prime Minister. Sorry. Sorry who? Sorry, Prime Minister. Yes, that's right. Sorry, Prime Minister. Prime Minister. And you, oi, you, the one that laughed when he called me a twit. You, oi, yellow tie, baldy. Stop looking behind you. Stop looking behind you. I'm talking to you. Look at me. Right, when he called me a twit, you pointed at me and you laughed. Listen, do you know who James Bond is? James Bond, do you know who that is? I'm his boss. Have any of you considered that? Forget the fact I've got the codes to blow this whole planet to dust. Forget the nuclear thing. 
I'm James Bond's boss. I'm in charge of MI6. And you, yeah, you, the one that pointed at me, I could have him come round your house. I could have James Bond come round your house, middle of the night, and wipe out your entire family if I wanted. Yeah, go pale, mate. Go very pale. Easy to be the big man in here, innit? Easy to be the big man when you've got 300 of your mates behind you. Let's see how big you feel when you wake up in the middle of the night and James Bond sat at the end of your bed, pointing a gun at you and your wife, and there's an eerie silence coming from your little son's room. Huh? Let's see how big you feel then. You try and ring your oldest son in Cambridge, but his phone's just ringing. Because we've already been there. We've thought of that. Let's see how big you feel then. You're all forgetting something. I'm the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister of the whole country. That used to mean something. Do you know who I was speaking with this morning? Barack Obama. You know Barack Obama? The President of the United States. Do you know him? Do you know him? No. He doesn't call you, does he? Do you know why? Because you're not the Prime Minister. Right, let me say two words to you. Two words. Code Dragon. Do you know what that means? Do you know what happens if I type Code Dragon into my computer? No, of course you don't. You've not been trusted with that information, have you? Because you're not the Prime Minister, and I bloody am. So how about we start all the questions again, shall we? steps of Westminster Abbey now, Princess Beatrice and her beaming new husband, Ollie Tunstone, the rugger player, their teeth making up a good 20% of their faces as they turn and wave briefly at the crowds, who, as you can hear, absolutely adored that. And I think, as I wipe a tear from my own eye, what humble people these two royals are. There you go, another wave. They saw the public many of whom have been camped out for weeks in sub-zero conditions and they offered a little wave of thanks. I mean, they really didn't have to do that. And now, as the golden carriage arrives to take them to Buckingham Palace and a footman there walking around and opens the door for them both, as he will for the rest of their lives, whoever dies sooner, God willing it'll be him, he opens the door and in steps Princess Beatrice, who looks back at her father, Prince Andrew, and her mother, Sarah Ferguson, who stand on the steps of the Abbey with the rest of this glorious family, and she offers a smile, not as a princess, but as a daughter, an incredibly wealthy daughter. And as Ollie Tunstone sits down beside her now, and the police outriders take their positions for the procession, I do consider taking my own life because surely this is as proud as any Briton can be, and it would be a shame not to go out on such a high, and off they go, headed for Whitehall and then the Mall, and thousands of schoolchildren and dewy-eyed pensioners wave their union flags, and oh, oh, good Lord, what's the... It's okay, they've got him. Good gracious. A, a man, um, a naked man, ran out there in front of the royal carriage. He was holding some flowers with unspeakably rude words about the royal family written on his chest, but he was immediately taken out by a marksman on the roof of, I'm supposing, one of the surrounding buildings, and his head exploded like a melon at the fairground. But the princess doesn't look too perturbed. I'm watching, on, I'm watching her on a replay now on my monitor. No, as they drive by the corpse, Beatrice actually points and laughs. And Ollie, Ollie seems 
comes beside himself with mirth, and I think that really does go a long way to underlining what fabulous characters they both are. That's the sort of story they'll dine out on for years. Tremendous. <laughs> My dad lives in Brighton. Well, he, he lives in a town that immediately adjoins Brighton, a town called Hove. And anyone visiting Brighton would assume it were Brighton because it's immediately next door, it joins up. But people in Hove are very particular about this. It's Hove. It's not Brighton. It's not a part of Brighton. It's Hove. And it's known, Hove is known locally as Hove, actually. Because if you say to a Hovian, someone in Hove, you say, oh, you live in Brighton. They go, Hove, actually. So they, the whole place has been called Hove Actually now. It's self-mocking humour. And there's even a shop now in Hove called Hove Actually. And it's a little boutique shop and they sell lots of things with Hove Actually written on them, like deck chairs, Hove Actually, sticks of rock, Hove Actually written through the middle, bits of driftwood, Hove Actually. It's Hove humour. Hmm? Anyone listening to this in Hove is thinking, well, now this podcast really is on the money. That's sensational. This Hove humour, it's self-mocking. I think it's good. It's self-mocking Hove humour. But it's strange that people in Hove want to distance themselves from Brighton because everyone loves Brighton. It's like distancing yourself from San Francisco. You know, San Francisco? No, 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 no. Nothing to do with us. We don't live in San Francisco. We might live within 300 yards of the Golden Gate Bridge. True, true, true. But trust me, this is not San Francisco. This is Doggington. <laughs> There's not a place called Doggington in California, but I was trying to think of somewhere that sounded unexotic compared to San This is not San Francisco. No, this is Doggington. But the people of Hove, actually, Hove, actually, are very particular about this because Hove has always been the well-to-do place compared with Brighton. Brighton more eclectic and diverse, certainly, but Hove, the grand old auntie. Hove is the Lady Bracknell of the two towns. And aspirational, always. Hove's always been an aspirational grand place. But I had no idea how aspirational until I saw something. There's a very good pub in Hove that you go to the top of Palmyra Square. That gives an idea what Hove is about. There's a place called Palmyra Square. That's the sort of place Hove is. And it's beautiful. Hove, I'm a fan of Hove. Go at the top of Palmyra Square. Uh, turn right. And there's a pub called The Wick. And I was sat there sat up on a bar stool by the window looking out onto Holland Street and opposite the wick there's a delightful magical old chocolate shop called Audrey's Chocolates and there's a, an awning beautiful windows full of chocolate and the awning says Audrey's Chocolates established 1948 and I thought hang on 1948 we were only three years out of a war. Everything was bombed to balls, rationing was strictly enforced, as it would be into the 50s. The austerity years, they were called. The austerity years! And someone's opened up a chocolatier. This says a lot, I feel, about the nature of Hove. There's a woman in 1948 called Audrey, and she's one day she's running her washing through a mangle, or she's helping other people carry away barrow loads of rubble from shell buildings. And she's looking up up and down the road as hungry, determined folk go about their business in a bankrupt country and she thinks to herself, you know what this place needs? I mean, fair play to her. She's called a neighbour over, a neighbour's called Joyce or something, and she said, listen, Joyce, I've just had a brainwave. You know the old fruit and veg shop up there that was blown to pieces in 44? Albert's? Yeah, Albert's. I've thought of reopening it. 
Oh, that's a wonderful idea, Audrey. I said, oh, I, I, we need a fruit and veg shop because we have a fair walk these days for decent fruit and veg. No, 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 no. Not as a fruit and veg shop, Joyce. Oh, maybe a Salvation Army Medical Centre, you know, so people can go and get help. No, Joyce. I'm going to reopen it as a fine chocolatier. Oh, well, a chocolatier, Joyce. A seller of fine chocolates. Oh, like a sweet shop. No, no, no. Like fine chocolates, like Belgian chocolates, fondant creams, deluxe marzipans, fine caramels, that sort of thing. Fabergé eggs made out of chocolate, Joyce. Have you ever been to the Burlington Arcade off Piccadilly? Well, no, I don't think... I oh, it's amazing. They've got a chocolatier there. These ornate chocolates, beautiful. There was one egg in there, only a little thing, but such rare cocoa, it was over £200, Joyce. Well, I'm not sure if people... I mean, we haven't got any milk. This is the thing. What goes into chocolate? Milk. That was rationed. Cocoa beans. Maybe you got two beans a year or something in 1948. Sugar. You got about a handful of that a month. How Audrey pulled this off? The shop's still there, so she did pull it off. She must have gone up and down the street, knocking on doors, persuading people to give up their meagre rations. Mm. Yes? Hello, I'm Audrey. I live at 46. Oh, yes? I was wondering, could I come in and speak to you and your husband? Donald? Donald? Audrey Rainwright's here, from 46. And they all sit down in the parlour. So, Mr Bradshaw, thank you for letting me in. How was your war? Oh, not so bad. Jolly lucky, I suppose. I saw most of it off in Cairo. Of course, lost the old leg here, as you can see. Man trap. Beastly day, but we should count our blessings. Now, what can we do for you, Audrey? Well, what it is... You remember Albert's Fruit and Veg Shop at the top of the street? The one that sold essentials to the local community? Oh, indeed. Albert was a dear friend to us both. Objectionable business, him being burnt alive in there by the Hun. Yes. Well, anyway, I was thinking of reopening it as a fine chocolatier. Oh, you mean like a sweet shop? No, not a sweet shop. You're as bad as Joyce. Not a sweet shop, a fine chocolatier. Like chocolates from Belgium and stuff. Like chocolates Poirot would like. Anyway, look, the long and short of it is, I'm going to need all your milk and all your sugar. Um, makes you wonder, does it not? Do you think our grandparents and our history books have rather misled us about what life was like during the austerity years? Well, post-war, we all suffered terribly. Of course we did. Sometimes, after 1pm or so, the deli would be quite out of guava juice and we'd have to eat our mango and pelican salad with nothing so much as a glass of Perrier water. But I think that Audrey's Chocolates in Hove acts as an inspiration. Because times must have been hard. There wasn't any milk. There wasn't any cocoa. No sugar. Just dust. But in 1948, nonetheless, upsprung a purveyor of fine chocolates. And maybe Audrey's chocolates acted as a symbol to the people of post-war apocalyptic Britain that if we can successfully open a chocolatier, we can sure as hell rebuild those schools. It's just a terribly civilised way of dragging yourself up by the bootstraps. That's all Audrey's chocolates is. And that's why, in the event of a nuclear strike, and in the event of me surviving that nuclear strike, I'm going to pick my way through the wastelands and cockroaches until I find some sort of remaining structure that resembles four walls with a little self-contained area inside and open my own shop. Stanley's Cravats, purveyors of fine neckties for the mutated radioactive gentleman. 
Learn football with Gaza, a series of free podcasts which teach you to play football like former England hero Paul Gascoigne. This week, free kicks. When you're taking a free kick, they think it's a free kick. It's just not a team, not a team game anymore. It's just you and ignore even the keeper. Um, and that is how you know when I was playing at Rangers and I was living in the countryside and there was no wife and no kids and no pals and I would um, go to the bar and the hotel and I would go and get a brandy and I'd say do you want his room number because they knew it was, I was living in the hotel and they'd go no we know you guys are sorry and I was, it was difficult because Rangers and Walter Smith the gaffer he thought right get Gaza out in the countryside in Scotland where he can't get himself in trouble and with what would happen in Newcastle and, and in London. And, um, but I was happier when there's nothing. And when there's nothing, uh, your mind, obviously, your mind's over. Um, and I would sneak off and just run it in the forest in the middle of the night about 3 o'clock in the morning, and it'd be pitch black and just run and run because I was bored and I was never sleeping and fall over and cut us up and bleeding or uh, fall into a stream and fall asleep in the freezing water. Um, but there was there was Paris at Rangers and Gordon Jury, I was a striker, and I put a fish in his car, right, and I put a dead fish, and I was under the carpet, and I never found it, and he had to sell his car, and he said to us, he said, Gaza, you got to sort yourself out and all that, Gerardi, he was said, sort yourself out, and and I was in the forest, and I was just run um, in the forest, and what a hotel is meant to be where you have a laughing, but no, it was a forest. Um, and there's yous there with no pals, and you're running just through streams. Um, there's no, I was n- never, never laughing. I've been fortunate enough in my 33 years to not have attended that many funerals, and the funerals I have been to were for decent, kind people. So when you sit there in church listening to the eulogies, people sharing their memories of that person. Those memories have always been completely positive. But then I thought, hang on, that must be the case at every funeral. No matter if the person were good or bad in their life, no one's going to stand up and slag them off at their own funeral. No one's standing going, I think all of those gathered here today would agree that Mary was, to each and every one of us, a vicious, meddling, thieving, deceitful prostitute who has, without question, made all of our lives more difficult in some way or other. I think even if someone had been a terror in life, a criminal or just really dull with no character, they have that way in church, vicars certainly, priests, uh, that use of language, that strange way of delivering language that makes a sandwich toaster or, you know, something normal like a compact disc or a computer video game somehow seem a bit unreal and detached they have that way with language that could dress up as respectable and upstanding even the most obvious of bastards we are gathered here today in memory of Paul Horsley, or Big Paul, as he was known to his friends and his acquaintances. Paul was a social man. He liked nothing more than to spend his evenings down at his local public house, 
the Red Scabbard, here in the town, where he would sit and talk about the events of the day, or that weekend's sporting fixtures, in his famous, booming voice that could be heard from all corners of the building, and even out into the garden. Paul was a man of habit. He would always order the same brand of beer, a Carling export, and sit upon the same bar stool. And woe betide any man who tried to sit upon his stool, even if he wasn't there when they sat down and were unaware of the rule. He'd soon come back into the room and say, Get off my stool, and would often lift them right up and place them down on the floor. But that was Paul, always joking around. Sometimes, as his ex-girlfriend Shanice told me before today's service, it was often very difficult to tell whether Paul was joking or whether he was not. On many occasions, only those close to Paul knew he was saying something in jest or not fully meaning what he was saying, even though his face was contorted into rage and hatred. Paul was a keen supporter of Arsenal Football Club and could often be seen in the public house or in the streets surrounding his home in the club's official replica kit. Whenever his team played a match on the television, Paul would be sat there in the public house, keenly supporting them on, shouting, come on Arsenal, and contesting the decisions of the referee or the ability of the opposition players. Paul was, in his younger years, a keen footballer himself. Indeed, as he was keen to remind his friends or tell strangers, he had once had a trial for professional club Crystal Palace, but had not quite performed on the day. Paul was a man who was passionately patriotic, to queen and country, as he would say. He believed his country was a great one and would argue fervently with anyone who suggested that other countries might also have positive aspects. Although when it was suggested by one wag that if he loves his country so much, maybe he should join the armed forces and fight for it, Paul was quick to point out his asthma, a condition that he had unfortunately suffered with from when he was a child. Paul was also a political man. He disapproved of immigration into the United Kingdom and believed that people living in his neighbourhood from other countries should be sent home to their native countries of origin, even if they had been living here for several generations. He wasn't scared to be controversial or caught altercation over this, dismissing claims of prejudice or bigotry by blaming, as he jokingly liked to call them, the loony left. Although that's not to say that Paul didn't enjoy foreign cuisine. He enjoyed foods from as far afield as India and China. He was also fond of the Greek speciality, the doner kebab, when he was making his way home of an evening. Although, as his good friend David here has reminded me to point out, there was one humorous occasion two years ago when he can't have been enjoying his kebab quite as much as he normally did because he threw it across the road at the local police station. He certainly didn't get home to see Shanice that evening. Although he did try his best and as David again has asked me to remind you, it took six officers to hold him down on the pavement and take him into custody. 
a testament to Paul's formidable physical strength. But it was to be Paul's body that eventually gave in to his energetic lifestyle, and he suffered his fatal heart attack at the age of 43. He leaves behind four, possibly five, children who have asked me at this difficult time to respect their privacy and to not reveal their names. Now young men and women themselves, they did not speak regularly to their father. But those of us who did, we will remember a man who was larger than life, a man possessed with true fighting spirit, and a man who will be much missed in a funny sort of way. May he rest in peace. It's time once again to stagger across the vast, frigid tundra of the London dating scene and speak to Alan Merrick, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of John Merrick, the Elephant Man, as he continues his odyssey across the frozen seas of his glacial love. Yeah, whatever. Good morning, Alan. Oh, good evening, Stanley. Everything tickety-boo? Never complain and never explain. That's my motto. Do you know who said that? Nope. Disraeli. Benjamin Disraeli. Funniest Prime Minister we ever had. Oh, really? How so? Oh, he was full of the one-liners. If he was alive today, he'd be on the stage. He'd be like that Russell Brand or someone. And I tell you, he probably wouldn't take any nonsense in Prime Minister's Question Time either. We were discussing earlier, uh, well, we weren't discussing, I was spouting off, about how if you get to be Prime Minister, that pretty much vetoes anyone making fun of you in the House of Commons because you're the best at being an MP. You agree? Um, yes, I'd go along with that. As long as everyone else is allowed to make fun of the Prime Minister. Oh, yeah, well, that's democracy, isn't it? We can make fun of him, the public can make fun of him. Do you think... Uh, would you make a good Prime Minister, do you think? Oh, I've no idea. What would be the first thing you changed? Probably... Extend the tube. Where to? The north. To the north of England? Yes, because you know how people in the north hate London. Well, no, not all of them. I mean, there is a divide. There's suspicion of London, isn't it? It's not hatred, it's suspicion. People think it's unfriendly and stuff when, you know, it isn't. Exactly. But if they were on the tube map, they'd all feel part of it. The, the northern line would be exactly that. But why would they get on the tube to London when they can just get on a train? You can... From Manchester or Liverpool, for example, you can get a train in two hours. Just ask the lead singer of the Bangles. She knows. If they got on a tube... From Liverpool, they'd be down there for days. It would be there'd be about four hundred stops from Toxteth to Kentish Town. Oh well, I don't know. It was just an idea. I think you're confusing England with Fraggle Rock. 
though. You know, it's beneath England. It's not made of tunnels. Oh, do you remember Fraggle Rock? Don't you care to wait? One is for another day. Let the music play. Down at Fraggle Rock. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful, though, Alan, about finding humour in simply remembering things. This isn't the Peter K podcast. No, no, of course. So, anyway, enough of this frivolry. Alan, date this week? Oh, absolutely. A very special date indeed. Oh, yes. Well, do tell. Well, you know how I work in a photography shop, developing the photos. In the darkroom, yeah. Right. Well, over the last few weeks, there's been a customer coming in to develop photos into black and white prints. And although I've never seen her, because Mr. Rookfeather doesn't allow me out front, I've been looking at these photos, and they are of this lovely young lady and some of her friends. Right. And, well, I don't mind admitting it, I developed, pardon the pun, a bit of a crush on the lady in question through the image that literally emerged before me in the trays. And as the weeks went by, I noticed there were never any men in the photos and so presumed that she was probably single. Uh, right. Okay. And so, about two weeks ago, when Mr. Rookfeather had locked up, I let myself back into the shop and accessed the computer files, you know, where all the orders are stored, because I knew the batch numbers so I could look up her name. Um, yeah, I... I'm, mm, I'm not sure that's entirely right, though, is it? I mean, Why not? I mean, Mr. Rookfeather has access to the information. It's on the company files. It's not classified or anything. But your objectives were to... Were to find out her address, you see. Why? Well, so I could write her a letter, of course. Yeah, but even so, I mean... Why, what did you want to write to her? Well, to ask her on a date, naturally. But I think there are still issues here, though. Like, have you seen the film One Hour Photo with Robin Williams? No, but regardless, I don't think you understand my intentions. And to be honest, I'm getting rather weary of you thinking you're always correct. I've listened to these podcasts. It's clear to everyone you're generally not. Why wait, should wait, wait, you wait, wait. judge me? Wait, no, I'm not, I'm not judging. You seem to think that you're superior or something. That isn't, that isn't true. That isn't true. It's obvious you're a clever guy and, and you're a decent guy. But I just think that a lot of people, I'm not, I don't feel superior. I just think a lot of people would have issues with somebody using somebody else's address for, let's face it, your own gain. You know, and it, she's left that in confidence. But what harm am I doing? The purpose of me finding out was simply so I might write her an admiring letter, not to go round to her flat or anything. Well, because it, it might be considered overly forward. Well, do you know another thing Disraeli said? He said, man is only truly great when he acts from the passions. Well... Well, yeah, no, there is, there's something in that, I suppose. 
Anyway, look, so did you write her a letter? Yes, I wrote and introduced myself, told her where I worked. I was completely honest and honest in my reasons for writing, which was that I applauded her countenance. <laughs> was her name Emily Bennett? No, her name was and is Michelle Phillips. And I included my address, naturally, and I sent the letter off. And? And four days later, I received a charming reply. Good God. I don't know why you're so surprised. Again, this patronising attitude of yours, Stanley. And after corresponding another couple of times in quick succession, we arranged to meet for a date. Look... Look, I never want to talk down to you. I'm just staggered that it worked. And more power to your elbow, Alan. I'm not having a go at that. It's, I think it's glorious. It's an act of valour. And so the date was on Saturday. That's right. Oh, Michelle. Whereabouts did you go? Just at the Pizza Express on Upper Street in Islington. I'm not normally a one for these chains, but it was her choice. And you can't really go wrong with a Pizza Express, can you? There's no risk, so it's one less thing to worry about. Right, so, time of rendezvous? Eight. And you arrived? Four. Couple of refreshers, a few wines? Yes. How many? Twelve. We're on track. So, what about her promptness? Good to fair. About 16 minutes past eight. And? Right, okay. Hey, once again, fingers crossed, Alan. Take it from here. Well, I got a little plan up my sleeve, you see. Now, I brought my camera along because I thought I could take pictures of us on our date and then I could develop them and put them into a nice album and give them to her as a gift if we go on a second date. That's a nice idea. So, I was ready with my camera because I wanted the first page of the album to be her walking in through the door of the restaurant and of course I knew what she looked like so I was all there primed with my finger on the shutter and then she arrives and so, oh, sorry to interrupt so when she arrived was she as she'd, you'd seen her in photos lots of photos but was she as good in real life as in the as in the photos oh better she was taller than i expected about five foot nine with profuse gorgeous brown hair green eyes a tiny nose and a wonderfully delicate jawline it was a, a chilly night so she had this fetching orange scarf tied over her blue denim jacket and then a sort of ruffle gypsy type of skirt and a pair of brown flat heels. Oh, she was absolutely divine. So then you go and take a photo. That's right. 
She's looking around, and I thought of doing an arty kind of shot of just her looking around the restaurant, but I thought maybe that's a bit rude, not letting her know where I was. So I stood up with my camera, aimed it at her, and said, Yoo-hoo, Michelle, it's me, it's Alan, and snap, took the photo. And she just looked a bit confused. And then I brought the camera down away from my face. And she just reeled back a bit and turned pale. So I took another photo, you know, because it's something to show the grandkids in the future, isn't it? But then she just let out this horrible ghastly scream and turned and ran out of the door. (laughs) So I followed her, taking pictures as I went. She was running down the street waving for a taxi and I was snapping away going wait it's me but she got into a cab and it quickly spread away listen mate i don't even know if you are my mate to be honest i have the photos here here's her in the restaurant here's her by the door here's her running in the street and here's one of the taxi oh it's so unfair i've got so much to give don't she cares away Worries for another day. Let the music play. Down at Frag Rock. This electrical podcast was written, performed, and produced by Stanley McHale. It features Stanley McHale and Anna Neal.